0: Back to
1: the Bins Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins I'm Paul Spataro And today I do not have my usual cohorts with me Today, I am here with Michael Bradley, who is a first-time, well, as we just discussed before uh, recording, not only a first-time Back to the Bins appearance, a first-time Two True Freaks appearance from uh, somebody who, unless I'm mistaken, was a fairly prolific podcaster at one time.
0: I'm not sure I'd say prolific, but I've done a couple different shows, and both solo and with, with uh, co-hosts, so...
1: Is all is is your old stuff still available uh, through iTunes and the like?
0: Unless something happened that I don't realize, it should all still be up there.
1: All right. So before we before we go, you know, you, we'll give you a chance to just kind of bring some of those back to life and let people know where they could find your recordings, even if oh, there's okay. nothing new coming
0: out. Um. Well, I I guess the three kind of most. Uh, Relevant ones would be uh, Superman and Batman, which was a show I did by myself uh, talking about Superman and Batman team-ups from throughout the years, mostly from uh, the classic World's Finest Comics issues. Um, and then there was The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, which was my very first podcasting effort. So if you go back and listen to that, just be aware that some of the audio was kind of rough, and uh, I was definitely shaking off some of the, the rookie uh, issue, rookie podcaster issues. Um, uh, but you can find both of those. And then there's also, uh, parallel lines, which is a podcast I did with the late Sean angle looking at, uh, the tangent books from DC comics in the late nineties. Um, you I feel can the need to
1: add to that. The late great Sean angle. Yes. Cause Sean yes.
0: was a great man. Yes. And uh, good, sorely missed good podcaster and a, a good friend. Yeah. Um, but you can find all of those at greatcrypton.com.
1: All right, cool. And just by chance, through a Facebook encounter, I decided to invite Michael to come on today and do a couple of books. And there's nothing quite like being totally pigeonholed into a uh, specific topic, <laughs> but somehow we, we, we both decided to just keep you on the Superman end of things. And I would feel a little guilty for that if you hadn't done it to yourself as well.
0: Right. That's all right.
1: So, what's what's your uh, before we go into the books? What's your current status as far as comic collecting goes?
0: Um, I'm reading just a handful of new stuff. Um, way way down from what I was um, even ten years ago. Um, but I'm I'm reading the uh, Superman books that Bendis is doing, and I think that's about it as far as the ongoing stuff. There's some like mini series and stuff that I pick up here and there, but yeah,
1: that's about it. Yeah, I'm seeing I'm seeing a real trend, at least among the podcasting community, whether it's listeners or podcasters, uh, that the current stuff just isn't grabbing people. And I don't know if there's a, another crowd out there that is being more enticed by this stuff, but I, I I'm not really coming up with too many people who are reading a lot and even the people who are reading a lot don't seem to be reading a lot of mainstream they seem to be more focused on the indie stuff
0: mm. well for me it it you know I was a regular Superman reader for oh gosh like 20 years let's see 86 to 2000 more like 25 years I guess maybe maybe closer to 30. I don't know. Time goes by so fast. I can't count. It, trust
1: um, me, it only goes faster every
0: <laughs> <as a> year. <laughs> but it just got to a point where, you know, the the way that like the decompressed stories that are you know more prevalent now, and the cost of the books, and the way uh, the storylines were going, the characterizations—none of it was really uh, ringing a bell with me, and. You know one or two of those things I can tolerate, and but just all of it added together, and I said, you know what? I, I just think it's time to walk away. And I've got a bunch of long boxes in there full of stuff that I can reread and a stack of stuff that I haven't read that I've bought. You know, I've got plenty to read. I think it's just time to walk away. And i I did come back when Bendis came to the Superman titles, but I don't feel that need to collect everything like I did once upon a time.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the the trend that I see with that is once you break the cycle and you miss a couple of issues and you lose that completest attitude that most of us have mm-hmm. or have had at one point or another, once you break that attitude then it's like, all right, you know, I'm just going to get what I want to get and I don't care anymore. Like the, it, it kills the collector's mentality uh, at least for the new stuff. For me personally, I still have a collector's mentality with Bronze and Silver Age books. Right. Uh, but I have virtually no desire to have current things. And even... The only, the only interest I have in current things at all is if somebody who I res- whose opinion I respect tells me, oh, you need to read this series. It's really, really good. But even then, I don't feel a need to own it. If I can take out a trade from the library or, you know, get it through, uh, you know fifty cent bins or whatever it is. I'm I'm fine with that. Like I, I don't really care anymore about that I need this collection of anything really to me post nineteen ninety. Even mm-hmm. I might even say post nineteen eighty five or so, which I'm kinda now going before your <laughs> before your start <laughs> of it all. But you know, you gotta remember I'm I'm a little older, so my heyday was in the mid to late seventies and the early eighties. So okay. You know, that and what came before it is really the stuff that interests me. There's a handful of series post-1985, but really is only a handful of series that I have any interest in. And I have a bunch of long boxes that I'm starting to divest myself of, little by little, uh, of this stuff that's more recent than that.
0: And and what I found, too, is, and I want to be careful how I say this, but I, I find that I'm a little more... I don't know if forgiving is the right word of stuff that I read because, you know, without that collector's mentality, without that gotta have everything approach, you know, you can read a book and if it just doesn't really float your boat, well, you can kinda of shrug it off and move on to something else. Because it's not you're not you're not so invested in it anymore. Which is both good and bad, I guess. But
1: Yeah, well it, it's it's good because it doesn't irritate you the way it does when, when right. you're when you know, when you're uh more invested in it. On the other hand, it does kill the fun of the hobby.
0: Yeah, but I but I still get fun out of going back to the old books and, you know, trying to fill holes from that stuff and rereading Silver and, and Bronze Age and Golden Age stuff, so.
1: Yeah, well, as, as we record this, uh, New York Comic Con is about three weeks away, maybe four, uh, but this is going to actually get posted much after that because of scheduling things. But I'm looking forward to going, and they have tables there and boxes and boxes and boxes of books that are a dollar or $2. And, you know, I can find Bronze Age books in there for those prices that will fill some holes in my collection. And I'm, I'm fully planning to, to come home with, you know, a solid amount of books. But so it's not that I don't enjoy the, the hunt anymore. It's just the focus of my hunt has changed.
0: Exactly. And,
1: and I don't have any excitement at all. For uh, new books coming out, I just don't. Are you
0: reading anything
1: new, or not currently? No. Okay. And I, I've the the most recent one I'm hearing people talk about is the Hulk. That somebody some people are saying that that series is really good, and I'm hearing some good things about the Bendis Superman run. But I'm also hearing that it's kind of it kind of already peaked and is starting to to drop a little. Hmm. So. You know I don't I don't know you know I might look into that when it's out on trade but I may I don't know it depends on how easily it's acquirable hmm. so but today we are looking at books from uh, what I don't know what year your book is from 1998 and mine is from 1989 so we are going back a little ways. Uh, as a guest, I will give you the I wanna option. I want to say that oh.
0: 1998 wasn't that long ago, but I, as I was pulling it out of my long box, I realized it was 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, I, I have that realization frequently because <laughs> I'll think, oh yeah, that's not long ago, and you know, basically, to me, 1990 isn't that long ago, and you right. know, that, that's coming up on 30 years ago, so it's just crazy. But uh, in fact, my book that I have today is 1989, so it is 30 years old. Uh, and that just seems incomprehensible to me. But I, as as the guest, I will give you the option whether you'd like to go first or second on
0: the books. Um, Why don't we do your book first?
1: All right. Well, I picked, and heres I'll just give you the background on this one. This is a book that I found in a 50-cent bin at New York Comic-Con about four or five years ago. And it's been sitting in my collection since then. And it's one that I've always kind of had a desire to read, but I never pulled it out and read it until we talked about doing the show today. And then I chose it for today's book. And then I thought that it might have been covered on the show already by other people when I wasn't on. But I don't, I looked and I couldn't find it anywhere, so I don't believe anybody ever covered it. Uh, and it's Lex Luthor, the unauthorized biography from uh, with a cover date of July of 1989. Uh, and it's a book that has a 3.95 cover price, so I got it for 50 cents a couple of years ago, so I was pretty happy with that. And it's you know prestige format with the uh, you know the I don't even know what you call the you know the spine bound uh, you know it's it's definitely a higher almost almost a graphic novel except for the fact that it's the size of a regular comic. Uh, it's got a painted cover on it of a kind of chubby looking Lex Luthor and it's done in i think a mock style of Donald Trump's Art of the Game which only becomes more <laughs> more, more more of a parody now with uh, with you know Lex Luthor having become president and Donald Trump having become president <laughs> uh you know there there's there's a little synergy going on there uh, it's written by uh, James Hudnall who I'm not all that familiar with, and I, I, I did not get a chance to look up these people, uh, illustrated by Eduardo Barreto, who I'm also not particularly fil- familiar with. Color artist is Adam Kubert, letter of Bill Oakley. And it's it's definitely made up to look like it's a real prose novel. Uh, if you When you turn the first page, it has, uh, it, you know, it's made to look like there's a flap uh, of, a, of a cover on it. And, I thought that
0: was a really nice design touch.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's kind of cool to, you know, to it, it definitely is, you know, they, they took out the stops to definitely make it look like a uh, regular novel. And uh, it opens up and it's like in a mountain cabin and Lex is there with uh, a. I guess, sexily dressed woman. She's got leopard pants and a, uh, cleavage shirt. And she comes walking with a VHS tape and, uh, says, uh, go put on something more suitable, or Lex says, put on something more suitable after I'm done watching this tape, I'll want you. And then he puts on a tape, and it's a recording of Clark Kent being interrogated for a murder. And he's not asking for any, uh, you know, for a lawyer, because he feels that they'll be convinced that he's innocent. But as this story goes on, it seems more and more likely that we know he's innocent, but that he may not be able to prove that innocence. Uh, And it turns out the murder is of a gentleman named Peter Sands. Uh, And then we go to a flashback where he's waking up and he's clearly filthy and hungover. Uh, you know he's he's living in a rundown uh, place. and he's trying to, he's he's a writer, a journalist, and he's trying to get some uh, some work, but people are turning him down right and left until he gets a call from uh, Ellen Fisher at Tinseltown Press. And she says the publishers looking for more product. And he cited the book on the Marilyn Monroe murder that Sands had written. And he wants to. They want to know if he's doing anything else at this point. So he, he just kind of goes through the stuff on his on his desk, and he finds something about Lex Luther, and he says, "Oh, I'm doing an unauthorized biography of Lex Luther. If you front me a check, I can uh I can, I can uh, start doing it for you." And as the story develops, little by little, he starts looking into doing this project because they do front him a check, and he learns more and more about Lex Luthor, and it goes back and forth between the interrogation of Clark and his involvement, because eventually Sands calls him in, but we'll get to that. Uh, And, like I said, as he's doing his research, he finds uh, an old school teacher of uh, Lex's, who at first doesn't want to talk to him, but then she gets him to sit down and talk Uh, an interesting point that really doesn't lead anywhere in the story but it's just kind of a you know something that makes you say huh is she mentions that uh, as a kid he was friends with a young Perry White which I just found to be kind of interesting it does create that small world theory that uh, I've gone with a few times but it's still kind of cool she talks about two people who bullied him around and that one day all of a sudden the two of them seem to have been in some sort of an accident and they never bothered him again. Uh, we go into a little further or he digs a little bit further and we find out that uh, through his research that what Lex did was he bought an insurance policy for his parents and then had their car uh, sabotage so that they would be in an accident. They got killed. He got $300,000, which at the time was apparently a lot of money, enough money for him to uh, to get started on his own uh, adve- you know, adventures. And we follow Peter Sands as he's doing his investigation, and we keep seeing this one dude near him who's clearly following him and listening in to what's going on. Uh, Peter meets up with an old vietnam war friend uh who did some work for luther but doesn't you know did was not left with any good feelings about him so he's willing to share some information but then while they're talking a car which is being driven by the guy who had been listening to them runs him down and kills him and peter starts to realize he's getting himself deeper and deeper into trouble but then he meets with a woman who used to date lex and gets even more information from her Uh, but eventually again he realizes that he's kind of digging a hole pretty deep that he may not be able to get out of he's got recordings of his interviews on cassette that he's keeping in a sealed bag that he hides in the uh, tank for his toilet and he eventually you know realizes what kind of trouble he's getting into so he contacts Clark Kent And tells him, if you can contact Superman to protect me, I'll share my information with you. But then Superman gets... Before Clark can come back as Superman, he has to take care of a natural disaster that's going on. And by the time he gets back, Sans is dead. So he isn't able to save him. Uh, But before he's killed, Sans is brought in before Lex Luthor. And it's really the only time we see him live in this whole story. Uh, which is sort of a very short period, considering it's a book that's uh, his unauthorized biography. Uh, and he, he just goes on kind of a madman's rant about how uh, he could do whatever he wants and that he's already destroyed the physical evidence that was hidden in the toilet. And uh, he he says he'll answer one question before Sands is killed. And uh, he asks him if he really had his parents killed, and he, he had basically cops to it says, you know, I could have become like my parents and wallow in cheap emotion and self-loathing as they did. Instead, I chose to become a god. I control human lives instead of being controlled. I can destroy someone with a phone call and what I can't, which which is why I cannot abide Superman. There is only room for one god on this planet and uh, that's kind of the nature of the conversation we have. Then we follow Sans back to his apartment with the uh, guy who had been tailing him, who uh, kills him and leaves in his blood on the uh, ground, he writes Clark Kent's name so as to implicate him in the crime. Okay, as, as things are just looking worse and worse and worse, uh, a woman comes in and an attorney comes in, a female attorney, and says that they uh, have solved this uh, the murder and that the the prints on the murder weapon belong to Edward Kelly, who happens to be one of the two people who bullied. Lex when uh, when he was a young boy uh, and uh, she tells Clark that uh, Lex hired her to uh, get him off of all the charges but that he's going to be looking for information from her and uh, as your attorney I'd advise you to cooperate after all you wouldn't want something like this to happen again then we cut to Lex who's back with that woman from the very beginning who comes in in a very sexy outfit and uh we see there by the fire as they start to uh, get it on, and that's the end of the story. So I, I really enjoyed this. I, I'm surprised I let myself wait so long before I read it. To be honest with you, I, I thought it was pretty well done. It was very different from what I had anticipated. I thought it was going to be more of a just, you know, kind of a faux auto, faux biography, uh, instead of being the investigation to put together the biography. Mm. Which I thought made for a much more entertaining story than just a rehash of, you know, he did this, he did this, he did this. The framing sequences, I think, really make the story. We already know what a maniac Lex is, uh, and by limiting his actual dialogue in the book to so little, it really does tend to emphasize how megaloma- megalomaniacal yeah, I got the word out. He is, and. I just thought it was terrific. I thought the artwork was solid. Uh, I think it 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 has a little bit of the uh, the the like the, the heavy hatching that I really don't care for that much, but it's it's not overdone, so I don't mind that. I think it's it's pretty. It's a pretty solid read. It's easy to follow what's going on in the, in the artwork. Uh, it's kind of moody in the coloring and the the uh, you know, the use of shadows, uh, the flashback sequences are colored in a slightly different tone so as to make them stand out. Uh, overall, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with this story-wise and art-wise. Uh, did, had you read this before, Mike? I
0: had. Um, I read it probably in the early to mid-90s, somewhere in there, but I don't think I'd read it since. All right. What,
1: what was your initial thought and did you reread it for today?
0: Oh, I cannot remember what I initially thought of it, but I did reread it for today. Um, I, I agree with you. I thought it was a really compelling read. Um, you know, at this point, when, like when this was published, there had been some stuff revealed about Luthor's past in the new, well, yeah, it was still new, pretty new at that point, a few years old, um, post-crisis continuity. But this offers some new details, and it just paints this picture of Luthor as someone who's just this manipulative. Son of a gun, who you know uses people and abuses people all to meet his own ends and further his own power and and riches.
1: Yeah, total total sociopath.
0: Yeah, Uh, but I like the the tone and the mood of the story, and you know, taken on its own, it's maybe a little bit over the top, but I, I think it works within the context of the other stories and. You know the fact that we don't, see, like you mentioned, we don't really see Luthor in the present day until the very end. It kind of um, helps to make him this unknowable figure, and it really plays into that the tension and the story, the the, the tension that Hudnall is building with the story and and Sans's paranoia that Luthor's out to get him and and you know that kind of thing.
1: Well, you you're also seeing Sans, who's a character I don't think existed before this book came out. No. But you're seeing him, you know, you start off with him at a total low where he's, you know, just living in a in a, you know, in the dregs and he's hung over and he's dirty and you know, nobody wants to work with him and then you see him because of this one break that comes in pull himself up to some extent and you know, you see that he is a good reporter or a good investigator mm-hmm. and that you know, it's almost like this job has given life to him again. It's resurrected him, and then it costs him his life. And I, I find that to be just, you know, like a, a a a terrific way to to bring the story from beginning to end. We start off on a low, and we we go up, up, up until he dies. Yeah. And it it's you know, it's almost like it's you know. I, I I don't want to say this in too crazy of a way, but it's almost like he was already dead before this sta- this happened, and he you know he was resurrected by the work. And it's almost like it was worth it because he got to have a couple of days of being alive again. Hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know if that makes sense the way I'm saying it. But yeah. Like that's the way I'm, I'm interpreting it. It's like it's almost, not, not that it's worth it, but that you, you'd rather have that happen than just stay the way he was at the beginning and, and live longer, but live a, a hopeless, meaningless life.
0: Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, he's still a tragic figure because. Oh, absolutely. You know, Luthor. Kills him both to eliminate the threat of him investigating his past, but also to um, coerce – not coerce, but uh, as, a, as, a, as, in a, as a way to attempt to get Clark Kent under his thumb, essentially.
1: And he – I mean, as, as best as I can tell, Luther has no idea that Clark Kent is Superman. No. But he inadvertently finds a weakness to exploit in his archenemy because – clark you know although he has superman's powers and can do things he doesn't have the overt ability to combat you know lex's underground connections uh you know he could have his reputation ruined he could you know he could have gone to jail for murder if lex had let it continue right I, you know, the whole thing was just kind of meant to be a message to him. You know, I, I, you know, because Lex doesn't know he's Superman, he thinks he's more useful to me, owing me, and right. fearful of me, than he is, you know, just getting rid of him. So, yeah. you know, in, in his own... He stumbles upon a way to exploit a weakness in Superman, basically.
0: Yep. And it talks about trying to find it now, how early in his career he had owned the, uh, the Daily Planet and how he, he used that ownership to plant stories about his business rivals mm-hmm. to kind of tank their businesses. And that's, you know, he had the power of the press on his side then and, and here trying to get Clark under his He's You know, if you have a reporter that you can kind of lean on to slant the news in your direction, you know, that's obviously going to help you out. Can you, can you
1: extrapolate from that, that he had a friendship with Perry White, and he owned the Daily Planet, that maybe, I you know, I think Perry is of a higher moral ground than to be owned by an underworld person, but would he maybe be beholden to a person who, while he has underworld connections, has generally a positive philanthropist uh, reputation to the point where he would do him favors and slant stories in his favor, not realizing that he's helping somebody quite so
0: evil. No, I think Perry White sees through him, sees who Lex really is.
1: See, I, I I don't really know because until this, I never really thought of a relationship with Perry White. So I'm I oh, okay. and I can't think of a lot of interaction between the two of them.
0: There was a um. In the in the post crisis continuity, and I'm I'm blanking on like the exact chronology of when it was all revealed, but they had a deeper history together. Uh, Perry's wife had an affair with Luthor, and then they had a son together who Perry then raised as his own. So, you know, their history goes way back. And there is no, uh, you know, there is no fondness with Perry and and Luthor
1: at all. Okay, So, yeah, so there's there's more, you know, my, my, I I, I would put it in hand quotes, my expertise uh, (laughs) of comic chronology really is mostly pre-crisis because that's when I was most actively collecting. So I mean I still have a good working knowledge post crisis, uh, but it's not as in depth and it's it's got more holes in it. Yeah, we
0: ne- I've read all these books, but I cannot just like rattle the history off like some people can. Like Michael Bailey, he can just you know you know tell you this stuff verbatim. But me, I have to kind of sit and think through it and process a little more. But yeah,
1: yeah, my 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 most you know my field of, with my highest. Uh, amount of information, you know, would be the Marvel Silver and Bronze Ages. Okay. You know, and I, I've i read, you know, most most of the Silver Age Superman stuff, but that's... A lot of that doesn't even have a lot to do with continuity. You know, they, they'd have so many, you know, f- fantasy tales in there, and imaginary stories, and just silly concepts that eventually had to be retconned
0: away. <laughs> yeah. Um, One thing that i liked about the story and, and and we didn't mention it earlier is that superman only appears in one little panel of this story and it's basically as a blur speeding out of the window on mm-hmm. his way to uh, was it japan or it was i think it was japan yeah, yeah japan yeah and i i you know he's mentioned only in passing and he only appears in that one panel and this is very much a Lex Luthor story, and it's not even one about his relationship with Superman, but it's about Lex, the man, the the businessman, and just the evil sob.
1: Yeah, and this is something uh, I I felt like I feel like the groundwork for this, in many ways, was uh, in Fantastic Four Annual. I don't remember. I think it was two where they had the story that was the origin of Dr. Doom... and the Fantastic Four wasn't in the story. Mm. And, you know, I mean, that's going back a little ways... but before that, I don't think they had ever dedicated a story... to that kind of extent, to a villain. And this story kind of... not in its tone or anything like that... but just in its... uh, I guess in its genre... that it's a, a villain origin story, effectively... Reminds me of that—that that they're willing to dedicate a book to a villain, uh, and it's a villain who has enough of a uh, an, enough cachet on his own that he he would have an audience.
0: Right. Well, wasn't there a a Joker? I've never read it, but there was a Joker uh, ongoing in the Bronze yes. Age, right? Yes,
1: I believe it was seven issues. I I do have that complete run actually. Okay. Uh, that was coming out when I first started collecting comics. I think it was already like one or two issues into it. So that's how far back I go. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that was that was in, in the early 70s, maybe around 72, I would say. In fact, let me see if I can find quickly. Uh, 75, no, it's a little later than I thought. Okay. Uh, and it was 10 issues. Oh, 10 issues? No, excuse me, 9 issues. So, which, again, I have that run, which makes me happy.
0: Who uh, who who is the writer on that? Do you have it up? Uh give me two
1: seconds and I will tell you at least issue one was written
0: by Denny O'Neill. Oh of course. There you go. Yeah, I'm looking at mics right now. Looks like they were Oh, nope. Looks like the first few issues were by Denny O'Neill and then it went to uh Ellie Magan and Marty Pasco and back to Denny O'Neill, Kinda all over the place. And then back to LEDS S. So,
1: and it was an yeah. interesting concept at the time. Again, you know that it was another groundbreaking thing because now we're dedicating a series to a villain, which right. I, I don't think had ever been done before this, the Joker one. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the, the different issues. First, you know, they had him face off against the Royal Flush Gang, and then they had the cre- the Creeper face off against him then he faced off against the green arrow so you know it was it it was an interesting way of doing things and how they were going to go about having him uh you know be the protagonist of the book you know it's it's to me it's a little groundbreaking in that you have a protagonist who is not a hero because being the protagonist doesn't necessarily make you a hero. It just makes you the center of the story. Right. Uh, and in fact, he, I think there was one of the issues where he actually fights Lex Luthor, if I remember correctly, or he faces off against Lex Luthor. I don't know <laughs> if they actually physically fight, uh, and we, I know we covered this one with Sherlock Holmes or somebody who thinks he's Sherlock Holmes. That we covered on an issue of Back to the, an episode of Back to the Bins. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head which one, which episode it was though. Boy, if I could tell you that, uh, like an episode number like that, just <laughs> off the top of my head, that would be a memory. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it is, you know. The, the, I guess it was a progression. You know, you started off where you could dedicate a story to the villain, then eventually you got to the point where you felt like you would give him a series, and. You know, then since then, there I think there have been quite a few different series that starred villains, uh, and then you know eventually we got to you know the antihero, which still I don't think really existed at the time the Joker was coming out. You know, the the first one I can think of to speak of, I guess, would be the Punisher. And that was
0: 1970.
1: So he, he was introduced, I think, around 72, 73, but okay. he didn't have his own series for. Quite a bit after that. Right.
0: Hmm.
1: And then, I, you know, eventually Wolverine was kind of pl- put into the role of anti-hero. And, you know, this, there's been quite a few different ones since then. But Lex Luthor, I don't think they ever really tried to make Lex Luthor a sympathetic figure. I don't think they ever tried to make you uh, uh, kind of ag- a... agree with what he did.
0: There was a mini series in the late '90s, like four issues, I think, that focused on Lex, and there he was. They they tried to kind of make him the hero of the book, and it wasn't very good. Uh, but <laughs> mm. but um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think they're the villains. They you shouldn't be sympathizing with them. Um,
1: I think the I best way to do it is to give you the ability to understand where they're coming from but to still disagree with where they go with that. Right. And I think that's what, you know, that's what they did with that Dr. Doom story that I'm talking about. That's, and I think that's what effectively they do in here. You kind of understand his motivations and how he's doing what he does, but you never once say, oh, that's reasonable. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you've fully set that he's a, a, a villainous bad person. Uh, and that he reacts badly to the choices he has, but you kind of see where he gets there. Hmm. So, uh, like I, I said earlier, and I just wanted—I'd like to just comment again on the artwork. I do think that there's a lot of really solid use of shadow in this yes. story to to create a. Kind of a film noir attitude. You know, you, you could almost see, uh, you know, if this was many years ago, you could almost see Humphrey Bogart playing the part of Sands. Ooh,
0: that would be good. So definitely, de-
1: yeah. to me, it definitely has that, like I said, that film noir added, you know, atmosphere to it. And I think, uh, it, it like I said, it that would be fun to see somehow if they if they could ever pull that off. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: I, I had in my notes about the art that it was cinematic, without being forty-eight pages of widescreen shots.
1: Yes, and and that is something in more modern comics that I tire of a little, and I, I think a lot of that is. It's a combination of two things: the decompressed storytelling, and the desire to have resale value for the art pages.
0: Mm, yeah,
1: that's that's what I attribute it to. And it also allows them to get a book done quicker, because if you make one page a poster image, you'll be done with that quicker than if you do a nine-panel grid. Yes. So all of that said, I think uh, we can get to some ratings on this book. I think the cover and its parody of uh, Art of the Game is really cool, and it was compelling, and it's made what made me want to pick up this book in the first place. I think... It isn't the way I visualize Lex Luthor because, like I said, he's drawn kind of pudgy on here. Uh, but just the same, I think it's an A cover. I, I really, really like it. The interior art, again, a little some of the inking is not quite as clean as I'd like. But for the most part, I think it's really solid. I think it's moody. I think it creates an atmosphere. And I think the storytelling is solid. So I'm going to give a B plus to the interior art. And the story, the framing sequence, the attitudes, the dialogue, everything about it, I think, is solid, and I'm going to give an A to the story. So nice. overall, I'm going to give the book an A.
0: One thing I just thought of before I give my ratings, sure. um, you were talking about the, the comparisons between, you know, Luthor having become president and then Trump becomes president. When they collected the President Lex storyline, they reused this for the cover. hmm and that was within the past two or three years.
1: Okay, so they, after, they did that with full knowledge. <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, because it was after Trump was elected. Uh, but anyway, um, as for my ratings, yeah, I'm with you on the cover. I, it's a nice, uh, you know, it's kind of a funny nod, but I, I will admit that the, the homage was lost on me when I first read this in the early to mid-90s. Uh, and that was just me not... Being a writer, really, of Donald Trump and his his book at that point, but I do like it, so I'm gonna give the cover a B plus. I think, yeah, we'll go with B plus uh, for the interior art. Um, I like it a lot. The the noir framing of some of the panels, and the lighting, and the coloring, and the scene transitions. It just it all works together really well to help keep the story moving forward and kind of sell the tone of the story. So I'm going to give that an A minus. And the reason I say A minus is the coloring. I like it, but I I just, it's a bit much for the whole issue. I think maybe it would have been a little better served to have the flashbacks be just a a little more um, neutrally colored rather than the, the, I'm not describing this very well, but so the the,
1: the uh, flashbacks are almost a sepia kind of you know washed out
0: look. Well, not those flashbacks, but like the um, the you've got Kent in the present in the in the the uh, police station being interviewed, and then you've got the flashback to Sands in the near present, and then you've got the far away flashbacks. Okay, yeah, yeah, and I think maybe having three different color palettes for those three different parts of the story might have helped it a little bit. But, you know, that's that's a very minor, minor complaint. Uh, but for the story, you know, I'm with you. I like the, the dialogue and the, the, the compelling nature of it all. And I just really like it. So I'm going to give that an A as well.
1: All right, cool. How about overall?
0: Overall, yeah, we'll go with A-. minus.
1: All right, good deal. And that'll be it for this book. And then we'll move on to yours.
0: All right. All right, so the book that I brought was Superman Adventures number 25. Um, Superman Adventures being the uh, tie-in title to the the uh, Superman the Animated Series, which was on, uh, as the top of the book says, Kids WB at the time. Uh, this particular issue was, has a cover date of November 1998 and a cover price of $1.99. And the cover is by Rick Bruchette and Terry Austin, and it shows... Superman and Batgirl um, on the roof. There's the the Bat-Signal in the background shining off, and we have doves flying down by Superman's feet and bats flying off in the background, and they're both, you know, uh, Superman's very uh, heroic standing akimbo with his legs spread and his arms on his hips, and Batgirl is leaping up, sort of awkwardly, over the the Bat-Signal. I like this cover quite a bit. It's actually uh, an homage to world's finest number no. one by Steve Rude a painted cover by Steve Rude which came out in uh, like 1990 I want to say uh, but the story inside is called er, is titled almost the world's finest team and credits are Mark Millar writer Mike Manley penciler Terry Austin Inker Marie Severin colorist xylan separations Lois Buhalis letterer Frank Berrios assistant editor And Mike McAvini, editor. And the story, uh, in Gotham City, the Mad Hatter has taken Bruce Wayne hostage and threatens to kill the billionaire if Batman doesn't surrender his cowl by midnight. With Nightwing out of town, Robin missing, and time ticking down, this looks like a job for Superman. After a rooftop meeting with Commissioner Gordon and Detective Bullock, the Man of Steel catches up with Batgirl, laying down the hurt on the Mad Hatter's gang. Unfortunately, Superman's sudden appearance draws the Domino Dare doll's ire when the thugs realize that the Batman family's normal brand of um, five knuckle persuasion isn't going to work with Superman around. Between Batgirl's detective work and Superman's muscle, the two heroes eventually track the Mad Hatter to police headquarters, where he is using a variety of mind control headwear to keep the police at bay. Hatter also reveals that he has abducted Robin who is in the Batplane en route to a little, mind-controlled kamikaze mission in downtown Gotham. While Superman uh, saves Robin and prevents a tragedy, Batgirl deals with the situation at police headquarters, ending the Mad Hatter's mind control by knocking off his own top hat. Unfortunately, Hatter makes an escape, and Superman and Batgirl chase him down to the sewer. With miles of sewer tunnel and Superman's x-ray vision being of no use due to lead-based pipes, Superman uses Batman's cowl to lure out the villain, showing that sometimes compassion works just as well as punching a guy in the face. With the day saved, Superman and Team Batman say their goodbyes. Batgirl says she now understands why Batman might not approve of Superman's way of doing things in Gotham. But Batman corrects her, saying that even for a city like Gotham, sometimes it's good to look up in the sky. The end. Um... The, the I think the story here in general did a good job of showcasing both character strength. Um, one thing I liked about it is that it it both played off and contrasted both without making that the story per se. And it's, it's a it's a big part of the story but sometimes I think writers get so consumed with the compare and contrast that it kinda overwhelms the story and I really didn't get that feeling here. Um, it felt pretty balanced, which a good team-up should. Uh, this story, I think, would have been equally at home in Superman Adventures or Batman Adventures, which, you know, it's – it's sometimes with team-ups, they feel a little lopsided. So I was, I was glad that both characters got a chance to shine. And um, one thing – I thought was kind of weird is that there's a bit in there where there where Batgirl says you know I'm guessing a man with X-ray vision is up to speed on why Br- the Bruce Wayne situation is a extra special problem, and um, Superman looks at her and says well I regard peeking behind masks and as as an invasion of privacy, but Batman forced the issue when I first met him, and I can only assume this is referencing the the movie or the the two part episode which they didn't but they then released as a movie. But that's where Superman and Batman first met in the the Timverse, as it is, or the DCAU. Right. And saying that Batman forced the issue there is kind of a, from a certain point of view, retelling of that, because in that, Superman basically throws Batman against a wall and then uses his X-ray vision to look under his mask. So, I don't know. That was that was kind of weird. Um, but at the end of the day, it feels like an episode of the show, which you know it's always a good test with these tie-in books um, which you know you can enjoy them even if they don't quote unquote feel like a part of the universe but it's always to me it's always much more successful if they do feel like another installment just in a different form so that's a win um art wise it's good you know nice dynamic action it sticks to the models of the cartoons but still feels like the artists were able to kind of put their own spin on things to a degree so yeah, I don't really have as much to say about it as I did with the with the Lex Luthor book, but that was a much, you know, meatier <laughs> more meat on the bone, so to speak than than this issue. So.
1: Yeah, and and there's a reason for that. I mean, yeah. You know, there's a different audience that they're shooting for here, and I think when I read a book like this, I have to acknowledge that I'm not the audience they're shooting for except on a superficial basis. I mean, I do have you know, some interest in any superhero things, but, you know, this this is definitely meant to, you know, to satisfy a younger audience, to appeal to a younger audience, and present these characters in a way that they're going to hopefully latch on to and eventually work their way up to the more sophisticated stories. Mm -hmm. Um, I enjoyed... Uh, you know the Batman cartoon I enjoyed the Superman cartoon and I really really enjoyed the uh, Justice League and Justice League Unlimited cartoons so the character models are fine with me in that forum but for some reason they don't work for me as well on the comic book page in that character model I don't know why because they are consistent with what I've seen in those stories Uh So I have to kind of get by that bias a little bit when I read these books. And, you know, I I was pretty much able to do that. I was able to read this without it, you know, bothering me too much. Uh, And, like, again, I, I don't even know why it bothers me. Because, like I said, it doesn't bother me in the cartoons themselves. But for whatever reason... It just—it almost feels a little too childlike when I'm reading it in the bu- in the book, whereas sitting on my couch and watching it, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. Uh, you know, is, well, am, am I being consistent there? Probably not.
0: <laughs> no, I think you're you're onto something though because they are they are very streamlined. I'm not going to use the word simplistic because I think that I, I don't want to you know imply something that I'm not trying to say, but. You know, they are very streamlined designs, and I think those streamlined designs work a little better in animation because the characters are moving and there's sound and dialogue and all that. Where here, they're just static images. So I can totally understand where you're coming from on that.
1: Right. So you know, that that's like something I had to get by. Uh, the motivations and thought processes of the characters are also a little streamlined. And again, I think that's because it's presenting it for a younger audience, and I don't really have a problem with that. I can move along fairly quickly. My biggest complaint about that type of thing is it just makes it makes for a very quick read. You know, it, there's there's no point where you really need to, to slow down and, and you know give it a lot of thought. Uh, but you know, as a general I think the thing that they definitely give the most uh, thought to, or the thing that that presents the most interesting thing from a uh, uh an idealistic approach is the different way that Superman and Batman or the Batman family will go after these people and and what what they're willing to do and how the the bad guys actually uh take solace in the fact that Superman is there because now they know <laughs> she won't hurt them right which I I did you know it's obvious and yet it still seems a little uh you know, it's something that you have to have pointed out to you to some extent, or at least I had to. Uh, I, I, you know, it's not something I had given a lot of thought to in the past. Uh, and, and as I was reading this, and we got to that point, I thought, well, Superman needs to, to do something to show them that he can he can get down and dirty just like they do. And, and, and we get to that point in the story where he does. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that... That's important to, to show that, uh, you know, they, they brought Superman into a point where I feel like they almost made him look a little silly because he was shown to be ineffective, but then he overcame that by doing things a little differently. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm glad they added that aspect of it because if they just left it that, oh well, he's ineffective, yet, you know, Batgirl with no superpowers can totally outdo him. I, I don't like when they do that to Superman. I don't like when they do it with Batman at all, and I certainly don't want them doing it with Batgirl, who's you know, a, a younger, less, less able version of Batman. Right. I, I don't want to see everybody just outdoing Superman all the time. I, it, that makes me very bothered. But to show that they approach things differently and he's still able to overcome that, I'm good with that. I can deal with that.
0: How did you feel about the gag at the end of that scene? Which gag? I'm um, about Superman buying the guy coffee.
1: Oh, <laughs> it's probably a little dopey, <laughs> but it did yeah. make me smile.
0: Yeah, same here. I've, I that stuff kind of makes Superman look a little milk toasty, but um, but yeah, like like you, it did
1: make me smile. Well, you know, though I'm taking it from the perspective of he, he's able to do what he has to do. He's willing to to take the steps he needs to, but that doesn't mean his moral code is going to change, and that doesn't mean he's not going to feel bad when he has to, you know, basically strong-arm people. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like, it, you know, it does create a character moment, and I'm good with that. Okay. Uh, it, it may be... You know, maybe I'm making excuses for them I don't know but it you know it made me smile so I'm willing to to stretch a little bit on that uh I don't you know I don't know if maybe we could have used a little bit more of the mad hatter in his motivations or maybe we're better off that they just left him as almost a uh, a background character in this particular story you know he he's the deus ex machina that they need to uh or well, not the Deus Ex Machina. He's the, you know, the uh, he he puts things in motion to create the situation where they have to do all of this stuff. But he he's never a
0: threat in and of himself. Mm. Yeah, it was a little weird the characterization of the Mad Hatter because at one point they he starts talking about, you know. All I wanted to do was steal a cow, and now he's turned me into one of the biggest mass murders in American history. And it's like they're trying to paint him as sort of this um, delusional, sympathetic delusional character. But then at the end of the story, he's just, you know, hugging the cowl, and it's very, um, very uh, charm—not charming. What's the word I'm looking for here? Um,
1: well, he 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 almost seems to me to be a little pathetic, and yeah, and you you have sympathy for him because he's just so, you know, it, it's like he's a simpleton. Yeah. Uh you know, or, or you know, you, you you start to feel that you know he's he's obviously got some sort of psychosis or something, and and you start feeling you know like well you know it's it's hard to hate somebody who you feel is doing what they're doing because they're mentally ill. Yeah. And, and you know the fact that he's falling in love with a, a cowl <laughs> so, 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 nothing says mental illness quite so much as that
0: yeah okay
1: at least that's that's how I'm viewing him in this uh, like I said the artwork uh, I have to get by the the style just that, you know, the cartoon style to it, but for what it is, I think it's fairly well drawn. If, you know, if, if you're accepting of the style, there are points where, you know, the perspective seems a little bit off where like Superman seems so, so much bigger than Batgirl, like, like she'd, you know, standing up, she'd only come up to like his, uh, his abs, uh, <laughs> But sometimes in the cartoon they do that too. So again, I need to be a little bit more forgiving of the style.
0: Well, there is that one panel towards the end where they're standing next to each other, and he comes, she comes up to about mid chest. So. Hmm. Right. I, yeah, I see that one. But then on the next page, oh wow. Hmm. Yeah, I totally get you're, uh, that he does look a bit large compared to
1: her they i mean they're drawing her as if she's 8 years old in some panels and and then Robin is even smaller than her so he's he's drawn about the size of a 5 year old you know i mean it's just uh, you know i i it's it's not very true to life but then i these aren't meant to be true to life so i again i right. have to be a little bit more forgiving of them because of that you know not 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 so much forgiving as willing to turn a blind eye to okay see?
0: so you want to go ahead and write this sure it's your book so you go and i'll follow up okay um the cover i i really like this cover i think it just showcases both characters you know superman looks so heroic and batgirl likes she looks like she's having fun um so i'm gonna give the cover an a yeah i'm gonna give it an a uh interior art um the The animated kind of style doesn't I think it sits better with me than it does you um so I'm gonna give the gosh you know I think before we talked just now, I probably would have given it a uh, a low a maybe a strong b but man i I don't uh I'm looking back at that panel now of, of all of them standing together and just like the this disproportionate sizes hmm. I think I'm gonna go with a strong B on that one, maybe B plus, for the interior art. Mm-hmm. Um, and then story-wise, uh, I will give it, uh, I will give it a B, A minus. <laughs> okay. I didn't plan my grades before we started talking.
1: That's okay, uh, not a problem at all. Uh, the cover, for what it is, is very well done. Uh, it's probably one that I would, you know, if I were in the comic store and I was looking to pick up my weeks comics and this came out, it's probably one that I would pass up based on the fact that I know this isn't intended for me,
0: Okay.
1: but the cover is well drawn enough that it would be tempting just the same. So for that reason, I think it succeeds because it would make me stop for a moment and look. So I'm going to give it a solid B on the cover. Uh, the interior art, I'm, I'm trying to overcome the fact that it's not just a, not a comic style that I really care for, you know, too, too much, uh, too cartoony, uh, but it's intended for a different audience that's going to appreciate the cartooniness more, so I'm trying to look at it, you know, with, with the eye towards does it does it effectively do what it's meant to do, and I think it mostly does. There is you know as we've probably pointed out too much now, you know the, the disproportionate sizing here and there, uh, but otherwise it's pretty true to the comic style. You could see them almost taking these pages and animating them. Uh, so I'm gonna say I'm gonna go with a B minus, but still you know still a B grade. Uh, And story-wise, it's it's a a simple telling, but it's kind of fun to read, and it does give you some food for thought that we talked about a little bit. So I'm going to say a B on the story, and I'm going to give the book overall a B. Okay. Not bad for a book that is not intended for me. Right. So, all right, so that'll do it for our two books for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and thanks, Michael, for coming on.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. I got to read two comics that I haven't read in several years, so it was a, a good evening. Uh,
1: it was a good evening for me as well, so thank you for, uh, for coming on, and thank you for getting me to read uh, two books that I might not have read tonight. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you all next week. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at 2truefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the 2 True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.2truefreaks.com. 2 True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiMonzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the 2 site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.